Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Lisa Hunsberger, who was also citation number 60. She is a lecturer at Kyushu Sangyo University and also the creator of the YouTube channel Yard Pickney. Very nice to speak to you today, Lisa. Nice to be with you as well, Christopher. Well, um, let's start with the name of your YouTube channel, Yard Pickney. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's something that people haven't heard before. Would you like to explain where that name comes from? Sure. It's actually an amalgamation of two very Jamaican words. The first, Yad, is the word that we, in our native language, we call our country affectionately. So Jamaica is Yad to us. And Pikni is how we say child. So Jamaican child. And before we started the interview, you said that there was uh, a, a good example of who would be considered a, a good Yad, Pikni. Yeah, well, actually, there's another phrase that we have, which is called a yadman. That one mm. is far more common. Yad pikni is definitely my original creation. I've never heard any other Jamaican say it, but we say yadman. And a yadman is a Jamaican man who is very big into Jamaica, into his culture, into his food. And when I think of yadman, like Usain Bolt is one who comes to mind because, you know, he's he's definitely, you know, brand Jamaica. He reps Jamaica really hard and you know, when I think of him, you know, I remember when he was running, everybody was talking about the foods that he was eating, all the Jamaican foods. And these are the kinds of things that come to mind when you think of a yard man. <laughs> but I'm a yard picnic. <laughs> yeah, my my two boys were, before we uh, had the Olympics here in Japan, uh, we were kind of promoting it with my two kids. And the, and the first person who came to mind of like who could infuse them with the idea of exactly um, for people who are watching the podcast that Lisa has just done the signature uh, Usain Bolt gesture and both my boys know that from you know watching YouTube videos of like this is the ultimate Olympian but also once he's he's completed the race he goes back to really you know expressing his Jamaicanness and I, I think that uh, there's something that, that, that my children are connected to. The focus of today's interview is your YouTube video called What Exactly Is Jamaican Patois? And drew my attention as a linguist because of how well you explained various aspects of the difference between what is a language, what is a dialect, what's a patois, um, what is slang. And the first thing that I'd like to ask you about is you, you note the inclusion of gesture as part of the dictionary definition of language. But in that, you suggest that this is a something that's connected to sign language. I always took it to mean that the use of physicality to emphasize or explain things was part of the, the idea of gesture. Would you say that Jamaicans are expressive, physically expressive people? We definitely are. It's gonna be very hard to see any bunch of Jamaicans having a conversation and you're not gesturing mm -hmm. while we're talking. That's definitely a big part of Especially if you're if you're telling a story in particular. Obviously, if you're just having, you know, a run-of-the-mill, short-term, you know, really short conversation. But if you're amongst your friends and you're telling them about something that happened, there are going to be some gestures involved. There, there are going to be some sound effects involved. For example, the car go, eh, I'm gonna go brops, and you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. We always are quite expressive when we speak. Is this something that when you're teaching English that 
is this part of your repertoire of teaching characteristics? Is this something that you bring to the classroom as well? Well, I bring me to the classroom and <laughs> I tend to be, <laughs> I like to think that I, well, let me back up before I say that. I, for me as a, as an educator, and I've been mm. teaching for 15 years. And so it's been quite a long time in the classroom, you know, Jamaica, France, Japan. And in Japan, I've taught like kindergarten, every single level from kindergarten all the way to university and also adults and retirees. So I've, I've run the gamut here in Japan. Mm. And one of the things that I've come across time and time again is how nervous students are and how afraid they are when it comes to making a mistake. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So I don't want them to feel so nervous that they can hardly focus. And if they make a mistake, there's something wrong. And so even when I'm correcting students, unless it's a student that's really way out there, mm -hmm. I, I try to be as jovial as possible. And so I guess that's where some of the, you know, um, and I, I look at the student with a really wide eye, like, what are you doing? And that's definitely specific to me or me within my culture. I, I want to get into the, I mean, the, the, the title of the YouTube uh, video that we're talking about is what exactly is Jamaican Patois? So obviously Patois is uh, a key feature of the focus of this video. We recently had an Asian linguist on the podcast and I asked her about the fact that in the paper we were discussing that she was listing deviations from expected English norms. Do you think that this is a way, a positive way to explain the differences between dialects, creoles, patois? I'd like you to give us some idea about how, if a, if a student comes to you asking questions about the differences between different varieties of English, how do you explain it to them, perhaps in the classroom? Well, for me, I, I think dialects are, dialects of a language are always very interesting. And I even created a Facebook group <laughs> just based on the questions. I would jump on my own Facebook and ask people like, hey, do you say this in your dialect of English? For me, dialects are fascinating. And because English is spoken in so many countries across the globe, the variations that exist are numerous. And how I explain it, and I did in the video as well, is that we have the core grammar. So when I say grammar, I'm, I'm thinking of how the layperson uses grammar, which is usually syntax and morphology, so the structure. And then we have the core vocabulary, words like words that are the same no matter what um, dialects of English you speak, so whether it's tree, man, child, child becomes children, tree becomes trees, go, went, gone. Those words are the same throughout, but otherwise there are going to be some variations in pronunciation. There are going to be variations in the slang that is used. For example, if I were to speak with someone from Australia, which I've had happen in the past, they the first time I heard the word uni, I wasn't accustomed to hearing the word university shortened at all. So when I heard uni, I had to make a mental note. Ah, they're referencing a university. And even now I say the word uni as well. So I've incorporated that variant in what I am saying. And so for me personally, it's a variant. It's just a different way of saying things according to the person's country or their socialites. So what group they are a part of within their actual country. Yeah, and it, it can be that this kind of shortening, I, I, I agree that um, Australians are a little bit odd when they do this, because they, they, they will shorten absolutely anything. And in, in, in this kind of way, they are similar to the Japanese who want to take 
single syllables of of words and put them together. So just to give the example of a the remote control, the device that you use to change the channels on your on your TV, it becomes Rimokon. And so the this this shortening is um, something that is uh, you know it's it's not unique to English, but it is yeah. something that is um, peculiar to certain languages and, and obviously certain varieties. Uh, but you bring up an interesting point about the idea of intelligibility. So even within the language itself, someone says the word uni, and until you know the context of it, you don't know that it means university. This is something that you touch on in, in, your, in your video. So I'd like to ask you about if a person, say, for example, myself, was to go to Jamaica, is there anything that I should know about the peculiarities of the Jamaican dialect that would help me on day one? Sure. And just before I, I give you some tips, I should say um, there are two very important things to remember. And one is that we actually speak two languages in Jamaica. And this is something that even within Jamaica, we ourselves don't recognize. And that's why for me, this is such a big passion. It's me trying to explain this to my fellow Jamaicans that we actually speak two languages. It's not bad English, but it's actually a separate language with its own syntactic morphological structure from English. And also I use the word patwa in the video, but I, I tend to prefer to say Jamaican language or Jamaican Creole or just Jamaican. Mm -hmm. I mean, because patwa was, uh, how do I say this? It wasn't a very kind word <laughs> that was used way back in the day to describe this strange sounding language that the plantation owners mm -hmm. heard being spoken by the enslaved peoples and so we ended up calling it that because that's what we were told it was but as linguists we see it as its own language in its own right mm -hmm. and i when it comes on to jamaican dialect of english i think for me it's we we follow the british model so when it comes on to like spellings for me program has two m's and an e neighbor has a u in there before the r thank you <laughs> But when it comes down to pronunciation, I think one of the things that you'll hear a lot is the kind of more characteristically Jamaican ways of saying things. For instance, when I came to Japan, I had to acclimatize myself to saying the word I, as in I am, I, because we never say I because it's two sounds, right? It's a, I, I, a going, a see, a walk, mm -hmm. right? And there are other pronunciations, like we don't say don't with that at the end, we say don't, not can't, but can. And actually we palatalize, so we say can. So kyar, kyan. But lots of things like that, I think, would be the things that you'd be hearing from the typical Jamaican person. And also the, the v sound, as in this and that, we tend to say this and that. And what was interesting for me when I was re-watching the video while I was editing it was hearing myself actually saying the this and that a lot in the video because I thought I always said this and that. But I think I've gotten to a some kind of mashup in between the two of them where it's not quite a D sound, it's not quite a the TH mm -hmm. sound, but it's something in between. Well, that's an important thing to 
discuss because I think this was possibly one of the motivations for you starting your YouTube channel. Uh, one of your first videos was called Jamaican Linguist Analyzes Brad Pitt's Accent in Meet Joe Black. And so him saying, everything one be right. I, 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 again, not, <laughs> not, 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 a, not a great, not a great use of the accent there. But so if I was to go to Jamaica and follow these things, I'd say everything gone be right. Like, is, is that acceptable? <laughs> or, or, or should I maintain my, my stoic British accent? I would, I would recommend maintaining the the British accent, mainly because <laughs> one of the things I realized with us Jamaicans is that we are we're extremely particular about pronunciation. And even for me, sometimes if I say things in as a Jamaican, if I say things in our Jamaican language, but with an kind of an anglicized accent, my friends will go, ooh, I don't know. Stick to the English. <laughs> Stick to English. <laughs> so we, we tend to be pretty specific but the thing with the movies especially is that what happens with these movies for us as Jamaicans is that we when it comes on to branded Jamaica we go hard we go so hard for our country our culture we are a tiny nation and so whenever we get that you know we get exploded onto the big stage you get the Usain Bolt kind of you know like yeah oh my god look at me I'm I can't believe this I've I've accomplished these things oh you know who I am this is amazing that kind of feeling of you know this pride that you feel within yourself to see your your culture represented on such a grand scale and so we're excited when we go into these movies or we watch these tv shows when we know that our Jamaican language will be spoken. And then, for example, with Marvel Luke Cage, Marvel's Luke Cage, I, I couldn't understand what they were. I didn't even know they were trying to be Jamaican. It was so, I use the word bad. It was so bad. <laughs> I couldn't understand what they were saying. And the problem was the syntax and the morphology was really way off. Mm. So it wasn't just about the pronunciation. So with Brad Pitt, because the woman that he was playing opposite was a Jamaican woman, born and raised. She's big. She was, she passed away. She was very big in our theater scene in Jamaica, which we have a very huge culture for theater back home. And because she was playing opposite him, she gave him some tips on things that he could say or things that he could, expressions that he could use to make what he was saying sound more authentically Jamaican. And when he spoke, when I listened to it, and I said it in the video as well. It's going to be so controversial in the Brad Pitt video specifically. But the, the structure was pretty okay for the most part. Mm. It was the pronunciation that was just way off. Mm. And so you, you, you imagine then, Chris, right? You go into a movie. It's a Hollywood production. And they say there's going to be a British man in it. And it's an American playing a British person. They're like, hi, man. How are we doing today? <laughs> and you're like... Well, and this is the entire, you know, at least with Brad it's a small scene, right? Mm. It's just two small scenes. But imagine that for the entirety of the movie. And this is something that I've seen with other persons with other languages. I, I don't want to name actors and movies, but there have been films where there have been instances where it's so atrocious that the, pers the people that they're representing 
are like looking at the side like what is going on like I sometimes when when I watch these movies and these films it, it takes me out and I am a huge I, I consume film astronomical rates right I that's how I I self-care right mm-hmm. I I love watching things that's what I do to just unwind and relax I love to watch movies mm-hmm. and watch film so it's hard when I do that and then I get totally taken out of it because I'm like what's <laughs> going on here oh, I, I take your point because I mean the, the person that I, I as I'm as I was listening to you, the person who came to mind is if you ever seen the original Mary Poppins and Dick Van Dyke I think Dick, oh, Van, yes. Dick, Dick Van Dyke is an amazing actor I think he's a wonderful uh, person great great at dancing and and does a, a wonderful job in that movie but everything he says is like come on Mary Poppins let's get up the <laughs> chimney and like do some things let's dance on the roof and like that's not how anyone ever has spoken in England, and so yeah, no, I I agree. And so if that if that uh, you know if that takes you out of the movie, then that that really does take you out of the movie. Something else I'd like to ask you about in from your video is at around the two minute mark, you use video effects to change the definition of what dictionaries do. So when we're looking at specific words, and at one point you take out the idea that dictionaries tell us what words are to change it to most dictionaries tell us what words are. What are your thoughts on the fact that there are some changes in dictionaries that are, they're not just descriptive, as you say, as you suggest they should be, but they are becoming proscriptive or prescriptive about how we should use certain parts of language? So I definitely, as a linguist, I definitely subscribe to a descriptivist way of approaching languages, Mm -hmm. approaching approaching language in general, which is basically observe what the speakers, the native speakers, the near native speakers, those who grew up speaking this language say and do, and just make a notation of it. I am absolutely more leaning towards that way of approaching language and languages in general. And... The reason I did that, I think I was saying in the video that the purpose of a dictionary is not to tell us what to say. They record how speakers use their languages and what they mean when they, when they use, they record what speakers mean when they use certain words and what context they use them in. And I realized when I was editing, I, I was, I can't make a broad brushstroke. I can't use a broad brushstroke for all languages, for all dictionaries across all languages across the entire world. Because exactly as you said, there are some that probably do. And I think it depends on the kind of dictionary. So the dictionary that I tend to be partial to is the Oxford English Dictionary. And it says right there in their definition, a record of the English language, right? So right there, they tell you what they're doing. And I actually read the the information on their website about how they compile their dictionaries before I made that that video. And then when I was editing, I realized, wait, I only, I I, I checked mainly this one dictionary and I believe that most dictionaries should be like that. But as you said, there are probably others that do prescribe. And the challenge for me is, 
is this a dictionary that is prescribing what someone says? For instance, take the United States of America. The US has 50 states and accents that I would say that from what I've heard, especially from my husband, you have, you have so in the USA, in, in the US, you have the East Coast, West Coast accents, you have the Southern accents, and then you have Midwestern accents. There may be more, but those are the main ones that I'm familiar with. However, even within the Southern accents, there are different Southern states. Within the Midwestern accents, there are different Midwestern states. And so if a dictionary is telling, if, if an American dictionary is prescribing how Americans should pronounce certain words, my, my thought then goes to which accent is the dictionary prescribing? Mm -hmm. Is it the entirety of the US or is it the Southern accents? And if so, is it within a particular state or is it for all the states that Southern accents cover? Mm. And, and for me, that's where the, I'd want to say danger of prescribing comes from. There, there are merits to having a prescriptive way of viewing things because that's how you're able to have that mutual intelligibility across all dialects of English across the entire world because we all know that it's that's tree mm -hmm. but whether I say tree or tray depends on where I'm from so I can't tell you that it's supposed to be tree e because maybe where you're from you say tray it's a tray and for you, tray is how you say it. But for me, it's a tray is something that I put my place on, right? Right. And so for me, that's where the challenge of it's why I, 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 when it comes on to education specifically, especially English education, mm -hmm. I like the idea of students being exposed to different accents because I remember when I was studying Spanish or and French, actually, I did French in university, we were exposed to, we were we were able to listen to different accents of Spanish and different accents of French. So could I distinguish between them at the time? No, I could not. It took me living in France for nearly a year before I could hear Celine Dion's very distinct Canadian French <laughs> accent, right? It right, took right. that long yep. of a time. However, I do think that there is merit in exposing students because I remember when I was teaching at a senior high school here in Japan, and I was coaching several students for their Aiken exams. And one student, he expressed to me how afraid he was of going into the exam and hearing any other accent that wasn't an American accent because he couldn't understand what they were saying. And I was thinking to myself that I, I wish that he could have been already exposed to these accents or just exposed to the same paragraph yep. then, but in different accents around the world. And so that he would have had an ear the different accents. I completely agree with you because this is something that I've come across. I mean, I have I have two sons and they they have to go through various levels of English language teaching, uh, first from me and then from their teachers. And then the question becomes, well, who's correct? Because I, I don't speak with an American accent. I I wouldn't try to. I have in the past and and in if you ever come to karaoke with me, then I might attempt to do Frank Sinatra's uh, voice. But it's it's not something that I think we should, as you say, prescribe. It's and it's certainly not something that that should be proscribed. 
I agree with you. I, I, I'm someone who believes in something called English as a lingua franca and the uh, work of people like Barbara Seidelhofer setting up uh, a database of various accents around the world uh, in her voice project. So never wanting something like a dictionary to tell you what you can and can't say what is or is not correct, but telling you basically this is what the word means and then how it's pronounced in different areas is is how it is. At one point in your video, you use the phrase Jafakans, <laughs> presumably to mean people who are using the Jamaican language either in life or in media. You've already referenced uh, the Marvel series Luke Cage. Have there been any experiences in your life when you've seen people doing this? And is it something that we should ask people to stop doing? <laughs> so we use those that term mainly for persons in movies where they're supposed to be playing Jamaican characters, but they clear they clearly are not. Well, they're not Jamaicans or their accent is just so way off. Accent, the grammar, so the syntax and the morphology, they're so way off that it's clearly not a real person. So yeah, definitely fake, <laughs> so Jamaican. And whether or not we should do it, so. My thing is this, I still am Jamaican and we still love having our culture, our language, our art, our athletes on, I mean, there's so many things that we have to offer the world, our cuisine. I love seeing it on the, on the big stage, right? And I will never say never do it because that for us as such a tiny nation, I mean, my, in, my country could sit comfortably within prefecture here in Japan, right? Mm. It's 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 roughly the size of Kagoshima. Mm -hmm. I think Kagoshima may be a, just a tad smaller than Jamaica, but that's our entire nation. And so having that representation worldwide means a lot to us. And that and that's where it that's why it hurts so much, Chris. That's why it hurts. <laughs> we want to see this representation and we're excited right. for it. And then it's like the oh darn it. What I would like to see is persons who are specific to movies and TV shows. Because I have been looking up how the language coaches, the dialect coaches work in Hollywood. And it would be nice if there were dialect coaches who offered Jamaican accent. <laughs> the Jamaican accent is part of their, added it to their repertoire then. However, from what I've been reading, it's largely up to the actor. It's, it's not a requirement then. It's actually not a requirement from the studios, from the studios that the actors go to dialect coaches. It's up to the actor whether or not they want to go to a dialect coach. So for instance, Tom Holland, who I think, the, I think as a non-American, I think he does an incredible American accent as Spider-Man. I didn't even know he was British because he sounds like a little teenage American boy to me. But well, I think he may the late teens, early adults. I, I'm not sure his age, his age, but he saw he plays the character of a young Spider-Man very well as a, a young American boy then. Yeah. And his dialect coach, he, he he wanted to as an as an actor, he wanted to really do his very best, and so he went to a dialect coach, and they did a phenomenal job together. I think as a non-American, <laughs> right? So it's entirely up to the actor whether or not they want to, and so. I'd love to see more actors who are representing the Jamaican language. If they are not Jamaican, 
just take the time to, I mean, at least get the, the structure right so that we can, we can listen and go, oh, the accent sounds weird, but I can understand what he's saying. But when it's completely out there, both accents and structure are so way off. That for me is when it's the most harmful because it's, it's almost as if I'm trying to speak Japanese and I just take the few Japanese words I know and make something up. Like it does a, a huge disservice to the people that you're representing if you're just taking bits and pieces of their language and you're just presenting it anyhow and then saying, aha, here's your language. Like, especially for, as I, as I keep saying, for such a small nation, it would be really nice to just have persons put some effort into it. And that's for me is where it gets more harmful than good. Well, particularly, uh, as you say, with a country that has a, a long tradition of, of theatre, um, you'd prefer that someone from Jamaica was actually in that role. Uh, we always want that so no, bad. Sure. <laughs> and also, as a, as a, as a note of uh, in interview fact-checking, Tom Holland is 25. 25, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. He definitely plays a teenage boy very well. <laughs> uh, it, it, it might have something to do with his body type. Uh, and also, uh, for people who are outside of uh, Japan, Kagoshima is right on the very southern tip of Kyushu, which is right at the very end of the main islands and, and is is not very big. But uh, yeah, it, it would be very similar to, you know, if there was... Uh, and if you've ever been, if you've ever lived in Kagoshima, they have a very particular way of speaking. I mean, Thank I you. lived there for a year and I've... Uh, and I spent time down there as well. Uh, they have they have Kagoshima Ben that really will trip you up if you uh, meet someone who's drunk on Imojochu. So um, I'd like to move on from the contents of your video to your own personal journey uh, during COVID. And the I mean the story of Lost in Citations is connected very much to the the COVID situation that it's been produced because we didn't have the chance to speak to people and go to conferences and uh, interact with other academics. But you've had your own story during this, and it's led to your YouTube channel and, and other uh, innovations in your life. Uh, how has your life and your, you know, your, your career uh, direction changed during this time? Well, leading up to the pandemic, I had always been quite the presenter. I always loved, I've, I've always had a love for presentations, both for designing them and for public speaking. Mm -hmm. So presenting, actually speaking to an audience. And from I was a very young child, maybe five years old, from I started speaking, I've been accustomed to speaking in front of crowds of like hundreds of people. So I've, I've been used to public speaking from a very young age. And so can, can, I can I ask you to, to, to speak to that? Like what, what, what were you, what were you talking about in front of these large crowds? Oh, this was at church. Oh, sure. No, no. I'm a, a, a someone from a Catholic background. I, I, I get that. But so you were, you were giving the lesson. You were, yes. you were leading the, the, the prayer. I was a part of different skits that they would have. At one point, I was like the secretary for, like the children's church, or the um. Not, not secretary, how would you say this? I would read the announcements then. And then I became the head person, the head of that section reading the announcements. And when I got to 
the adult church when I got older. When I went to the adult church, I became the head secretary reading the announcements as, as well in front of the entire congregation. And I would be a part of the service in different ways. Obviously not every week because there are many members, but I was a, my face and my name were very well known at the church and I was very active. I've always been, now that I think about it, very active in lots of different things throughout my life. With, 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 the, with the communities that I am a part of, I was always very active, always in front of the crowds speaking and playing roles in plays and in skits. Not the greatest actor there is out there, but I had a lot of fun in it. That's, at that point in my life, I really did. And so when I came to Japan, I basically transferred the same ideas of being a part of a community, of speaking in front of people, of you know, just getting involved. When I came to Japan on the JET program, and the JET program had these opportunities where, check the opportunities, obligations, where you had to present. <laughs> and most persons hated those opportunities, <laughs> those obligations then. Right. And for me, I liked it because I could sharpen my skills. And I really did. I sharpened my presentation skills. And so when I when the pandemic started, I realized that I had all of these presentations with nothing to do with them. There, there's I just presented them at a conference or because then I started, you know, I, I joined JALT and started doing all other, you know, all these other things and even at work as well. And I had these presentations, even for that's why I started with making YouTube videos on the Jamaican language, because I was making these presentations and I had them sitting there and they looked so beautiful. And I'm like, wouldn't it be nice if I could use them for something else? And so that's when I started making these videos. And for me, the videos started because when most Jamaicans watch a lot of these movies and TV shows that I referenced earlier, we were able to say yeah, that that doesn't sound right. We say this instead. However, not very many Jamaicans can explain why that's not what we would say and why we would say this instead. And so as a linguist, I could see why we can't say it this way because this is not how we mark tense in our Jamaican language. When it comes to the pronunciation, we don't say guan, we say guen, right? We don't say tan, we say kyan. So that was where the motivation came from. And it was, I, I wanted to make it as digestible as possible. And that's why I use all those annotations. Those are me using my presentation skills to do the annotations within the videos. And when the pandemic started, I had a number of persons who were in my presentations previously from the JET, as far back as the JET program, all the way through JALS, other conventions and conferences that I've done, reach out to me to ask me for ideas on how to make their presentations that they're now gonna to have to make for their live classes online interesting for their students because they remembered something that I did and they want to be able to replicate that. How can I do that? And from a while back, I had a colleague, the first time someone said to me that I should monetize my skill set was actually a colleague at my university, Kyushu Sangyu, that said something to me, he said, I should be a consultant. And I thought to myself, a presentation consultant? Such a thing exists? And then I presented at the Black Women in Japan convention and another person 
Corinne, she pulled me aside. It was our first time meeting each other. She pulled me aside. She said, listen, you, you have you have something here. You need to make this into a business. And that's when I'm like, okay, so maybe I could start looking into it. And I put out my feelers to try and figure out like how does one go about starting a business in Japan? So I was already looking into it. And then the pandemic started. And then I had more person, you know, these persons reach out to me. And so it, it kind of just came together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I, I'd gotten the ball rolling with YouTube, just gotten the ball rolling, just gotten the ball rolling with looking into starting a business. And then when all of this happened, that's when it kind of got catapulted into, okay, so I do have, I have, I have a design eye. I've come to realize I have a way of seeing things and expressing things and breaking things down, scaffolding in a way that is very visually appealing to persons who are watching it. And also when I'm explaining, I, I find ways of make, simplifying the, the very complex things, really breaking them down for persons to help them understand. And that's kind of how it all came together. Well, I would recommend that uh, our listeners go and check out all of the videos that Lisa has on her channel because they, they really do exactly what she said. So, I mean, it, it's a, obviously it's, it's a controversial idea to make presentations interesting, um, but that you have done so in a way that one of the reasons the motivations for this interview is the, the, uh, the video we're talking about, um, what exactly is Jamaican Patois, doesn't go into Jamaican Patois immediately. It breaks down the idea of what is language, what is dialect, what is Creole, what is you know, what are these different areas? And it does so in a way, and I, I was talking about this with, with John the other day, it doesn't, it doesn't take you out of the frame. The frame remains the same, but it just subtly moves things into different areas of the, of the screen that means that you understand these, these concepts much, much more easily. And simple is difficult. Like being able to explain something you know, highly critical to the differences between different areas of language and doing it in a way that doesn't mean that you have to change the, the slide, that doesn't mean that you have to, you just use the same elements and, and you, you divide them in a way. Uh, this, is, this is something that um, I highly respect. And so I do recommend that you go and, and look at um, Lisa's videos, even if you're not interested in linguistics, just go and take a look at it from a, from a stylistic point of view you will get inspiration from it. For people who are doing this type of work like presentations, I know this was the, the, um, the topic of your, of your previous interview, but I'd like to ask you a slightly different question. Where do you go to upskill in this way? Like, where do you go to learn how to use different ways to create PowerPoint slides or to create videos or to redesign the way that you present your material? Do you have any recommendations of software or other things that people could do in the same way that you did? Obviously, I don't want to take away from your business, but uh, what would be your advice to someone who thinks that they would like to try and do better in this area? I think that there are lots of resources on YouTube. I do watch lots of YouTube videos. As I said, for me, watching films and videos, that's how I unwind. And I think there are lots of really great resources on YouTube. 
And there are lots of websites as well that have a really great breakdown of organizing presentations that I think with just a simple search, it definitely would be easy. I know for me, and this is something that is not, this is not even the kind of advice that anyone would have to pay me to get, <laughs> simply because I, I have a workshop that is entirely free that breaks down exactly how to make presentations a lot more interesting for audiences. And I, I'll give the same advice that I give there. And what I find that tends to happen with the presenters is that we get so caught up with what we have to say and getting that on the slides that we very rarely stop to think about our audience and how they're able to receive what's on the slides. This happened, this way of making my presentations more audience-centered happened to me when I was a grad student at the University of the West Indies, Mona in Jamaica. And we had these, uh, every year we had to do a, I think they call it like research day or graduate student day, I think it was research day. And you had to do a presentation and we all hated it, including me back then. I hated making PowerPoint presentations. I use largely Keynote now, but I'm proficient in both. And I had a concept to explain about slabification. So how syllables are formed in an Arawakan language. And the concept was really difficult. And when I did the, the dry run with my colleagues, I had some technical difficulties and that were my fault entirely. And my colleagues ripped my presentation to shreds in their frustration when I finally got going. I went home, I held in the tears, went home and I bawled my eyes out and I sat down and I'm like, all right, you know what? When, when you get critiques or criticisms, you have two things that you can do. You can say, well, you know what? Whatever, I'm just gonna do whatever I wanna do. Or you could listen as hard as it is and see if you can pick out any of the good things out of it. And one of the overwhelming things Respond, reactions I was getting was that they just couldn't understand what I was getting at. Right. And if I'm putting this on the side and they can't understand it, then I need to figure out how can I make them understand it. And I completely revamped the presentation. And at the end of the conference, this, ended, this, this was actually not the research day conference, but we ended up having to present this at the Society for Caribbean Linguistics, which they were having a conference in, I think it was Dominica at the time. And at the end of the conference, the head of our department came up to me and, and he said that was the most intelligent use of PowerPoint I have ever seen. And his, his phrase, intelligent use of PowerPoint, that blew my mind because I had things moving and growing on the screen and shrinking back down to show that something is moving and it's doing these different things. And so the idea of having my animations match what I was explaining, that was where it started. And then here in Japan, I taught at a low level senior high school. So low, low academic, I should say, low academic senior high school. There were some classes with really high academic students that I very rarely got to see, but my main students were the low academic students. And because of that, when teachers would invite me to team teach with them, I had to think about how can I make this interesting? They wanted me to explain lessons or talk about different things that there were students who were going to study in their lesson. And I'm thinking to myself, man, these kids would be so bored if I just stood in front of them and just threw English at them. 
Mm. How can I make this interesting? Maybe if I had some pictures, I don't want to print the pictures. That's going to be a waste of paper and ink. I can put the pictures on a slide. That's, and I can match what I'm saying with what's on the slides. And that's where that kind of scaffolding came from. So I think if persons who are looking to upskill, mm -hmm. think about their audience mm. and think about ways that their audience can more easily understand what they want to convey that would make a really big difference that that is exactly right and and the, the thing that i wrote down while we were speaking was the the idea of the audience like understanding yes. who is the person who's listening to you you might find it interesting you might find it funny but if your audience isn't engaged or your audience isn't laughing then it's not it's not necessary <laughs> Where are you intending to go with this part of your career? I mean, what is your 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 future goal with this? Oh man, I would love to have this take off because with YouTube, I've learned a lot of really great video editing skills. And one of the things that happened that I deliberately did during the pandemic was when we had to do our asynchronous lessons. I decided that I was going to put my all into these videos and use this experience to increase my video editing skills. And I graduated from iMovie to Final Cut Pro by the end of the year last year. And I've learned a lot of really great things with video editing. And I've done video editing projects for different persons, different organizations. And presentations are still my passion, my baby. And I'd love to continue with a business where I can be as artistic as I want to be and help persons to achieve their goals. My dream would be to have this. I'd love for this to be my main bread and butter. Like I enjoy it that much. I get actually find it relaxing when I do these different things. And for me, it's, for me, it's more art than work. And as a result, I enjoy it. So I'd love to see, I'd, I'd love to have a, a long <laughs> clientele list. I'd love to have more persons who are interested in this. I'd love to have persons who understand the vision that I have when it comes, at least the perspective that I have when it comes on to presenting and to viewing presentations as being audience centered and not present presenter centered having persons who want that for themselves. Because even workshops, I have workshops planned where it's not just me creating things for persons, but teaching them how to do this for themselves. So they can learn how to do this. Showing them how they can take the same idea, but adapt it for children versus teenagers versus retirees. Just having that kind of variation with the same content is absolutely possible. Uh, that's a really positive uh, note to finish this uh, interview on. I agree that it, that it should be uh, a media that now that it's available to everyone on their phones and their devices, there should be no age limits to it. There should be nothing that, that there's, there should be no barrier to entry. Uh, the only question is the quality, you know, how much people are willing to put their time and effort into it to make things interesting. So that's a that's a really good message to finish on. Uh, we've been speaking today with uh, Lisa Huntsberger, who is the creator of the YouTube channel Yard Pickney. All of these links will be available in the Podbean feed. Thank you very much for your time today, Lisa, and I wish you all the best in your future projects. Thank you so much, Christopher. It's been really nice. Lost in Citations is an audio journal 
that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.